You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Tonight we look at verses 1 through 17. We begin reading at verse 1. We'll read down to the 17th verse. The Word of God says this, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Let me just stop there. On the day when His mother and His brothers came seeking Him. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to Him, so He got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because... They had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we give You praise and thanks that You are sufficient for the work that takes place in this next hour. You are sufficient both for the preacher and for the hearer. Despite our weakness, despite our frailty, Lord, You are at work by Your power producing good, producing fruit that lasts for eternity. You have saved this people, and you're at work in them, Lord. 
conforming them to the image of Jesus. Even as we just sang about, your hand is upon us and you lead us. And through all the things we face, easier times and harder times, we are never without you and you are never not working. And in this we rest and in this we rejoice. So Lord, would you take your word in hand this night by your spirit and deal with our lives in a way that will bring eternal good, contributing, Lord, to that ongoing work of sanctification in each of your children's lives. And Lord, we continue to be mindful of the lost among us, and we ask that you would save. We thank you, Lord, for the many baptisms we've seen this year, and we thank you for the many people that you're saving. Lord, would you just continue to do that for the glory of your great name. We rejoice as you add to your church. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a grave mistake that you often recognize in the thinking of people when it comes to their encounter with the Word of God. The mistake of thinking that your spiritual opportunities will always be the same. I'll consider that. I'll think about that. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I'm not ready for that. Maybe there'll come a time in my life when I'm ready for that. All along assuming that the opportunity that God gives you today as you meet with his word, you are certain to have tomorrow or next week, or next month, or next year. It's a very dangerous way of thinking that your spiritual opportunities will always be the same. Now, certainly that's true in the case of lost humanity. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know if you're going to have it tomorrow. But I would remind us, this is also true in our lives. I mean, we, we belong to the Lord, and, and we're going to be conformed to the image of His Son, and He's going to finish what He began, and all of that gives us great confidence. But there is such a thing as bearing less fruit than you could have based on your responsiveness to your Lord. And the idea that you and I as believers can meet with truth that calls for change in our lives and reject it, be dull toward it, not respond to it, and have the exact same opportunity tomorrow or next week or next month or next year would be a mistake. You may not. And there can be real, weighty, painful loss in the temporal realm based upon the disobedience of Christians. Things that will grieve your heart in your own life, in your family, in relationships that you have with others, how important it is that when we recognize we are hearing the voice of God in His Word, we respond obediently, submissively. When we come to Matthew chapter 13, we meet with a change in the preaching ministry of Jesus. There is something different. He is now teaching by means of parables. Now, He has used parables before. But we're going to see that he's now using parables in a different kind of way. Before, the parables that he would give almost served like 
analogies meant to illuminate the straightforward truth he was preaching and teaching. He's making clear statements of truth, and then he's illustrating through the use of parables and analogy. Beginning in Matthew 13, he's doing something different. And the difference is noted in at least three ways. First of all, the change is marked by the introduction to the first parable in this chapter. You see it in verse 3 when Matthew says, And he spoke many things to them in parables. Now, if he's been doing this all along in exactly the same way, there's no reason to introduce this chapter of seven parables in the way that he does. This is something different. You also recognize this is something different based upon a question the disciples ask in verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And again, if this is the way Jesus has been teaching all along, the disciples would not have noticed this. They would not be asking such a question. Why are you using parables the way that you are? And then third, notice Matthew's description in the 34th verse makes this unmistakable. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he was not speaking to them without a parable. Something has changed. The way people had the opportunity to hear Jesus before, they no longer are being given that same opportunity. They're having to listen to him now in a different kind of way. If you ask what is the reason for the change, it's going to be explained in verses 11 through 17, and we're going to deal with those verses tonight. But we can say at the outset that what we are seeing here signals judgment. The change in the preaching ministry of Jesus represents judgment upon stubborn, persistent, willful unbelief. You met with the truth. You're closing your eyes to that truth so that now you're not going to be given the same opportunity. You're going to meet with preaching that signals your judgment. And so tonight we're going to think about that. We're going to think about God's judgment on stubborn, persistent unbelief. And my prayer is that when we're done tonight, the result would be in our hearts, even as believers, Lord, I don't want to be stubborn. I don't want to meet with truth and think that I can turn away from it and be guaranteed to be in the same place tomorrow. Let me respond urgently, immediately to what I meet with in your word. Three main points tonight, I'll just give them to you as we come to them. First of all, I want you to notice the presence of large crowds. The presence of large crowds, verses 1 and 2. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds, literally many crowds, which might indicate people coming from all sorts of different places, but there's this mass of humanity gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. So the first thing I want you to notice is the shift in Christ's teaching method was not because people were losing interest in Jesus. This is not some pragmatic shift. You know, I'm losing interest. I'm losing their attention. I'm not convincing them. 
So let me go about it another way. No, the change is not due to crowd interest. People continue to flock to the Lord Jesus. In fact, this is a striking scene. He walks out of the house and he sits down on the beach. And as he sits down, the result is that multitudes gather around him. Everywhere he goes, there's interest. Everywhere he goes, there are needs. He is constantly being sought after. This is just one more day of it. This this day is no different. The crowds are so large that Jesus gets into a boat, uses it as a pulpit, as it were. This is going to be the platform from which he preaches. And as the bank would lead down to the water, that bank forms sort of an amphitheater, an auditorium, where the massive crowd stands to listen to him. He sits down, which was the customary posture of the teacher. What I want you to recognize is that Jesus goes on to describe what he's meeting with in these crowds as blindness, deafness, and ignorance. Massive crowds, everybody interested, but he indicts them. Look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Massive crowds, massive stubbornness. I want to remind you, crowds don't equal disciples. The size of a crowd is no way to measure the true interest of the listeners. You can have a a massive crowd of people and be meeting with massive, sinful stubbornness. You say, well, then why are people attracted to Jesus? I mean, they don't want to listen. Why are they coming? Multiple explanations. Curiosity. I mean, there are miracles being worked at his hands and on his commands that the world has never seen before. They find Jesus interesting, and they want his help. They want healing. They want deliverance. They want food in some cases. But what our Lord is telling us is they want him on their terms. They don't want him based upon who he really is. They don't want him based upon what he is most profoundly offering. They want him in a superficial sense. They want him, in a sense, to serve them. They want what they can get from him, but they don't want to relinquish their lives to him as Messiah and as Lord. They don't believe in him in that way. 
good example of this is after Jesus fed the multitudes. In John 6, 22, I mean, if there's a miracle that would convince you that this is the Son of God, when you take you know, just a little bit of food and you multiply it and feed a multitude of people, that's a creation kind of miracle. And John 6, 22 says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. You're going through all this effort to come find me because you were fed, not because you understand who I am. And that should be a lesson that lasts to this day for the Lord's church. How often do churches measure their effectiveness by the size of their crowds? The crowds are larger, we must be doing something right. If the crowds are smaller, we must be doing something wrong. As if a crowd is the measure of spiritual life and humble hearts and teachable hearts and obedient lives. Even worse, to miscalculate what a crowd means would be one thing, but to be satisfied with crowds. I mean, regardless of the spiritual condition of the lives of our people, regardless of the holiness of the lives of our people, as long as we have a bunch of them, we're satisfied. Not so with our Lord. He's rebuking the crowds even as they continue to grow because they don't seek Him for the right reasons. The second thing I want you to notice, not just the size of the crowds, but notice he is now proclaiming truth in parables, verses 3 through 9. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and, and then he, he offers the first one, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now later in our study of Matthew, not next week, but the week after, we will examine Christ's explanation of this parable. Tonight, what I want you to do is simply think about what it would have been like to be in that crowd. If you're able to do it, forget the explanation of this parable that you've heard many times. And imagine you're hearing it for the first time. 
Jesus describes a sower. A very common thing people are very familiar with. A field is prepared, tilled, prepared, and you have someone going out with a bag of seed and they're scattering it, they're sowing in the field. So you have a sower. All over the field is the same seed. And there are four different soils represented. There were walking pathways and there were roads that would run between the fields in Galilee. And so there would be areas where it was trampled down, trodden down. It was like a road. And so that's one of the kinds of soil upon which the seed fell, a pathway. Other areas of the field would be shallow in terms of soil, limestone underneath the soil, not very deep. That's what he means by rocky soil. Any good farmer would have removed stones from the surface. That's not what he's talking about. Something underneath so that the soil was shallow. Thorny soil. Again, any good farmer would do his best to remove such things from the soil, but it's there sometimes. You don't even know it. Anybody who's worked a flower bed knows that. All you see is dirt after you plant the flowers, and then there are weeds coming out everywhere. You say, where did that come from? It was there, just couldn't see it. You have a roadway, you have shallow soil, you have thorny soil, and then you have good soil. So that you have four different results. You have seed that is devoured off the pathway. The birds come and eat it up. There was a time that my family and I, we lived in South Texas, lived down in the Corpus Christi area. And if you're a little skittish, you don't want to go out onto the beach with bread and start throwing it up in the air because you're going to have birds all around you very quickly. And they're very aggressive with that bread that you're throwing out there. Well, I'm sure that as these sowers would go out and begin to sow seed, the birds would gather. And so the seed that falls on the pathway, it's eaten up, it's taken away. The rocky or the shallow soil, you have this immediate growth but it's not able to take root. And so the sun comes and it withers and it goes away. It doesn't bear fruit. And then where the seed falls in the thorny soil, it's eventually choked out. There's no crop there. And where it meets with good soil, you have varying fruit. Some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. Jesus just talks about a sower and his field and the various soils. And then he ends by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. That is, if you have the capacity and the willingness to take the lesson, then learn it, listen to it. Can I tell you something? If you're in the crowd that day, you have no idea what he's talking about. I know you've heard this parable explained, so it's hard for you to envision that. But if all you ever heard was that, you would have no idea what he's talking about. And this was the nature of his teaching now, beginning in Matthew 13. He's teaching the people, the crowds, in this kind of way. The proof that we would not have understood this is that his disciples, who are very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures and very familiar by now with Jesus' teaching, they don't understand it. In fact, with each of these parables, the, the pattern we're going to see is the crowds are given no explanation. The disciples come along later and say, explain it to us. And Jesus does. So you have these massive crowds of people, but now Christ's preaching is different. He is giving them truth 
but in, in parable form so that they're not able to understand what he's talking about. And the disciples come along after and they get the explanations. Which leads to our third point, that is, why? The purpose of truth in parables. Why? This is the obvious question. And the disciples ask the obvious question. Verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, you need to remember, to grasp the answer that we're about to see, you've got to remember the previous chapter. The religious leaders of the Jewish people have just accused Jesus of being the greatest emissary of Satan the world has ever seen. He's doing things the world has never seen. He is saying things people have never heard. And their explanation for it is that he's possessed by demons. He does what he does by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus responds, you remember, warning them about the blasphemy of the Spirit of God. But he says to those religious leaders that they represent something larger than themselves. They represent an evil, unbelieving generation, a type of people. They are not alone, you see. It's not just the leaders. It's the nation that is proving willfully, sinfully stubborn as they meet with Jesus as they meet with God face to face. There's been a house cleaning. Jesus tells the story of the demon that leaves a man. And when the demon leaves, the man's house is swept and put in order. The demon comes back with seven others more wicked than itself. And the end for that man is worse than when the demon first left. Well, there's been a house cleaning in Israel through the influence of John the Baptist and through the influence of Jesus. Things have changed superficially, but if they don't take the the right step, the next step of trusting in Jesus as their Messiah, trusting in Him as their King, trusting in Him as their Savior, the end for them will be worse than when Jesus met with them. And that's what's taking place. They are rejecting their King. They are rejecting His kingdom. And our Lord's change in preaching is based on that reality. In other words, what we're seeing is a judgment on their rejection of Him. Now, their rejection of Him has not yet reached its culmination. That's going to be the cross, the fraud trials, followed by turning Him over to the Romans, followed by the opportunity to have Him rescued from the cross, but they would rather have a thief and a murderer. Their rejection of their Messiah will reach its culmination at the cross But it's already being put on display now. The decision is already being made. And the way Jesus begins to preach and teach reflects that. Some people think that Jesus here is talking about a different kind of kingdom. Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. From here on out, he's talking about the kingdom in a different sense. Offered to the Jewish people, the kingdom promised in Old Testament terms, but now due to their rejection, he's talking about the kingdom in a different sense. That's not true. It's the same kingdom he's been talking about all along. And the reason people think this is because Matthew uses the terminology, the kingdom of heaven. 
instead of the kingdom of God. But the problem with trying to distinguish those two ways of referring to the kingdom is one, in Matthew you find places where Matthew uses the terminology interchangeably, talking about the same reality. But in addition, there are places where in Matthew, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and in parallel passages, I mean, the exact same circumstances, the exact same teaching in Mark and in Luke, kingdom of God is used. It's not a different kind of kingdom. But what does change is he begins to talk about aspects of that kingdom that are described in veiled terms in the Old Testament, but now Jesus is revealing these things in clearer terms. That's why he talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You see, there's something old and something new that Jesus is talking about. What they've expected all along, same kingdom, but here's some things that you need to know are associated with this kingdom that you don't clearly understand. Namely, that there are going to be two advents of the Messiah. He comes the first time to save. He comes the second time to judge and usher in his kingdom. He comes the first time as a servant. He comes the next time, the final time, as the line of the tribe of Judah. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who will rule from his throne in Jerusalem over all the earth. Not a different kind of kingdom. Just a fuller explanation of that kingdom. Is the kingdom, we, we talked about this earlier in Matthew, is the kingdom genuinely offered to the nation Israel? Yes. Is Israel responsible for her rejection? Yes. Will her rejection mean riches for the world? Yes. But none of this is catching God off guard. None of this is plan B. This has been God's plan all along. The offer, genuine. The rejection, foreknown. Predestined. So that now the Son of God is preaching in a way that indicates He is being rejected. He will be rejected. But here's God's plan in the age, the inner vening age between the first advent of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. What is going to happen is sons of the kingdom are going to be gathered in. And they're going to be gathered in alongside false sons, tares. And the final judgment as the kingdom is ushered in, that judgment will reveal it all as the sheep are separated from the goats. And the way the sons of the kingdom will be gathered in is through the preaching concerning the king. So from the human point of view, the Jewish rejection of her Messiah is tragic. But from the standpoint of God's eternal decrees, God's plan is unaltered. There's nothing surprising. These are just mysteries that are now being unveiled by the king himself. Notice how our Lord describes some differences. There, there's a difference in reception 
and communication. He says in verse 11, to you, he's talking now to his disciples. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, that is to his disciples, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. There's a difference in communication and reception based on sovereign election. What does it mean when it says to you it's been given but to them it hasn't? God made a choice. And so the disciples are receiving information. They're able to grasp it. They don't fully grasp it. They won't until after the resurrection. But they're going to be in the category of those who receive it and understand it and believe it because of God's sovereign grace. To you has been given to know these mysteries. To them it has not been given. This is why I'm preaching to them in one way and explaining these things to you in private. Who's making that choice? Jesus is making that choice. There's a difference in reception and communication that will involve both gain and loss. Verse 12, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. What a frightening reality is being described there. Those who trust in Christ grow in their understanding of him, of his work, of God's truth. But those who reject the light they're given, there are diminishing results. You know, we're sort of on the precipice of grasping. It now evades your grasp. It's taken away from you. You lose what you thought you had. Whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. And all of this fulfills prophecy. As I said, none of this is plan B. None of this is unexpected. Verse 13, therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. He gives Isaiah 6 verses 9 and 10. You will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. There's a deafness, there's a blindness. There's a hard-heartedness, verse 15, for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears they scarcely hear and they've closed their eyes. You see, this is something that they are responsible for. This is a judgment on light rejected. You don't see, you're blind, but you also close your eyes. Lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. God judges sinful, stubborn unbelief by taking away even what you have. And in a way that we can't get our minds completely around, but we must acknowledge it and we must rejoice in it. There's a willingness on God's part, even as he's judging them, there's a desire, we could say, on the part of God that it would not be this way understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. If you would hear me, if you would recognize what is being set before your eyes, if your heart would be tender and receptive and responsive, 
Salvation is set before you. And our Lord will go on expressing that longing. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? I would have, but you would not have it. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, both on display. So the difference in communication and reception explained by God's choice, the difference in communication and reception involving gain, increasing gain and increasing loss, this fulfills prophecy. This is judgment foretold of in the Old Testament scriptures so that those who can see and hear and have hearts to receive must recognize how blessed they are. This difference in communication and reception emphasizes the grace of God in the case of those who see and hear. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He is here, as John the Baptist said. But only his disciples see that. As he preaches, only they hear him as the Messiah, as their Lord, as their King, so that they are truly spiritually prosperous. They're blessed. Can I ask you, my brothers and sisters, Now on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, we who have received the gospel of Christ, we who have had eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive, how do you process that? Do you say to yourself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. I was wise when they were foolish. I was good when they were evil. I was soft-hearted when they were hard-hearted. I could see when they were blind. I could hear when they were deaf. Or do you rightly recognize the only difference between you and them is the grace of God so that you feel blessed and thankful and humbled and your heart is filled with worship. God has had mercy on us Has he not? God has had mercy on us. Did you receive every bit of light God gave you before he saved you? Or isn't it true to say of all of us, there was light rejected? There was light unresponded to. We were not responsive to what we should have been. God had mercy. So let me finish tonight. As we just consider what that crowd heard and how they would have processed it, without explanation of what the parable actually meant. That comes later as Jesus explains it to his disciples, and not just this one, all the parables in this section. This is the pattern that follows. Let me just offer quickly some observations and then some points of application. First, some observations. As I said, there are seven parables in this larger section. You can recognize that. Just look through the chapter and you'll see 
the various parables that Jesus gives. In no case is an explanation of the parables given to the crowds. In every case, the explanation, when, when an explanation is given, is given to his disciples. In fact, it's interesting that in verse 1, and this would be sort of a tool that Matthew would use to draw our attention to this. In verse 1, Jesus goes out of the house to speak to the crowds. In verse 36, he leaves the crowds and goes into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Outside, inside. To the crowds, one kind of communication. To his own disciples, another kind of communication. Mark chapter 4, verse 34 says, And he was not speaking to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So that the use of parables demonstrates a divide between those to whom the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed and those to whom the mysteries are not revealed. And that is by the choice of Christ. Those mysteries, as I've already said, have to do with additional revelation concerning the kingdom. You can see these truths Jesus talks about in, in seed form, in veiled form in the Old Testament, but now he makes it clear that he's going to be coming again. And when he comes, there's going to be a great judgment. But until then, there's going to be the growth of the sons of the kingdom, the those who will populate the kingdom. And it's going to be in a world still filled with unbelievers at the same time. As I said earlier, I want to just underscore, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. There's no difference. And so the additional revelation concerns the delay of judgment. This is what would have blown their minds. The Messiah comes. This is what John was struggling with in prison. Where is the judgment? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Where's the fire? And the additional revelation reveals that the judgment will wait until the second coming of the Messiah. And until then, there's this gathering of the sons of the kingdom. So that on display in this chapter is both judgment and grace. The judgment, the, the just judgment of people who refuse to see and the grace of God in the case of those who by that grace have been made disciples of Jesus. As he teaches them things privately, he doesn't teach to the crowd. So let me ask you as we go home, do you recognize human responsibility when it comes to revelation from God? Do you really recognize that? This is frightening to me. For you, it frightens me for myself. Do we meet with things from the Word of God and then ignore it? Thinking, wrongly, that we're guaranteed that we'll have the same opportunity tomorrow or next week or next month. I mean, there's a shift in the way Jesus is teaching the crowds. You can say rightly, something has changed. The, the opportunity is not the same. Now, we understand those are unbelievers, but we are a people who tremble at the words of God. Do we understand the weighty responsibility of revelation from God? Second, do you recognize then 
the danger of refusing that revelation. Where are you, my brother, my sister, where, where have you been stubborn lately? Where has the Word of God been identifying areas in your life that if you can be honest with yourself before God, you know the Lord is putting His finger on you. But you have stiffened your neck. Would you stop? Would you humble yourself before the living God? Your God. Your God. Because I'm preaching to the church. And yield to the Lord where the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, is dealing with your heart. Don't fight with your shepherd. We sang tonight, he leads me. But a part of what we sang is that we would clasp his hand in our own and willingly follow him. Stop fighting your shepherd. Would you recognize the mercy and the grace that explains any sinner's ability to grasp revelation? Yes, man is responsible. But man left to himself will never be able to embrace the revelation God has given. It requires grace for people to see and to hear and to believe. The new birth precedes faith. So that as you evangelize, you don't imagine you're in a battle of wills. Your task is to sow the seed and to pray to the Lord of the harvest for others who will sow the seed and then to understand that any time any sinner has believed God's Word and been saved as a result, all glory, all praise goes to God because God's grace explains that conversion. Which, by the way, will stop all pragmatic approaches to evangelism. You don't sell someone into the kingdom. You don't cool them into the kingdom. Let's just show you how we're like you. That's not how people are saved. In fact, people are coming face to face with the Lord when they recognize how different the church is from an evil, unbelieving generation. And then in your own case, You'll consider yourself blessed that your eyes see and your ears hear and your heart is not dull to the things you're, you're being given. It's God's grace that explains you, Christian. You have nothing to boast in but Jesus. We sang about that this morning. Our only boast is Christ. So that we let that knowledge humble us. Humble us. And cause us to tremble at God's word. What a gracious thing, God, that you would give me your word. And what a responsibility that I've been given it. That I've heard what I've heard, been taught what I've been taught, know what I know. Now, what am I doing with all of that? Let that knowledge fill us with thanksgiving and make us more willing to receive. Thank you, Lord, for what you've taught me. Please teach me more. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Please be at work so that I grow. Isn't it glorious, older saints? We don't stop growing until we go home. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. It doesn't matter 
how long you've studied the Bible, how many seminary degrees you have. We don't stop learning until we're face to face with the teacher. So thank you for what you've taught me and helped me to learn more. And to learn in a way that it's not just more information, it's a transformation of my character. Make me more like Christ. And every child of God would say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are witnessing in these verses things that should cause us to tremble. Righteous, just judgment on sinful unbelief. Amazing grace upon people who don't deserve it. So that we see and we hear and we grasp what is only possible because of you. Let it inform how we think about sharing the gospel. Let it inform how we pray for the lost. Let it inform our own worship as we think about our own salvation and what explains it. Make us a church that's humbly full of thanksgiving and praise and wonder at your mercy upon us. Yet faithful with your word, knowing that you are at work as your word goes forth, gathering the sons of the kingdom into your kingdom and into your family. Trusting you, Lord, to wait until the day of judgment, knowing we can't sort it all out as to which ones are wheat and which ones are tares, not entirely. Thank you for our Savior. His coming into the world, knowing all along He came to die and to be raised, to set us free from our sins and to make us right with our Creator. Thank you for His saving work in our case. In Jesus' name, amen.